You've heard me talk before on the show about how obsessed I am with the visual language of storytelling, how I 100% wholeheartedly stand behind the idea that movies are visual. And by no means am I saying that scripts aren't important. An important script, an important structure, you need that. You need a place to keep everything together. You need to be able to tell a human story. You need uh, human performances. You need realistic performances. You need uh, sequences and blocking that feels natural, feels like it's breathing, feels like it wasn't constructed. It just, it flows correctly. And for me, I've always relied on storyboarding. I've taught myself how to storyboard. I was trained as an artist as a kid. Uh, you've heard me talk about it on other shows. I've, you know, I got rejected from from uh, from uh, films, not film school. I got rejected from art school, um, which sort of changed my path. But uh, I always thought I was going to grow up to be a comic book artist. I love the idea of adding uh, depth to a two-dimensional image, adding uh, emotional contact or emotional context to the angle, towards the perspective, towards the scale of creatures and characters and who's standing taller and who's in control of the scene. I love that stuff. That's my favorite part of making a movie. Um, and the, the first place that I really get to see it is in the storyboarding stage. Now, you know, I'm in the process right now of prepping uh, my first feature film. And it's a feature film with a pretty large production company out here in, in Hollywood. So that's really cool. I get access to some really great resources. I get access to really talented and smart people. Um, and so like I did with the short where I decided that, look, I've, it's, it's too big for me to direct a movie in another language and shoot a movie in another language. And that's how I form my relationship with Cruda. I'm trying to do the same thing now where it's i don't want to just storyboard all my work i'll do some key sequence drawings but it would be nice to have a partner in crime in this process and yes i do so with my cinematographer but it would be great in the storyboarding process to go like how do you see this sequence and to be able and talk to a storyboard artist that has that experience and then they'll go wow well you didn't think about it like this what if you do it like that um and it just becomes a little bit more collaborative in a stage which was typically pretty lonesome, right? Because it's just me doing it myself. Um, so in knowing selfishly, knowing that this is going to be an, a step for me and a new process for me, I wanted to reach out and talk to some storyboard artists. I want to talk to some artists that help design the sequences, help design the trailer meet that uh, we all know and love right now. And I just happened to be doing some searching for it. And I found today's guest uh, on Instagram and I started to scroll through his illustrations and my jaw dropped. And then I went to his website and my jaw dropped again. Um, today's guest is a writer. He's an illustrator. Uh, he is a director. Um, and he is a storyboard artist and uh, he's going to walk us through the origins of his career, how he got to where he ended up, talk about some of the people that he was in school with that are huge, huge directors these days. 
um, and the relationships that he's built on films that I grew up loving, that we all love, right? I mean, he has been working for Sam Raimi since Army of Darkness. I don't know, maybe even before that. And he's done uh, uh, storyboard work on Army of Darkness. He did storyboard work on The Quick of the Dead. He talks about working with John Woo. You'll see how that connection works. Um, and then ultimately ended up becoming a second unit director for Sam Raimi. So he was second unit on Army of Darkness. And then he ended up going to direct uh, episodes of Hercules and a bunch of other stuff, um, which is really crazy. And he starts to, we start to talk about specific projects and he, he kind of like follows his stream of thought and he just randomly mentions these films <laughs> that he was working on at the same time. And you're going to be like, what? <laughs> I know I was. Um, so this is a very exciting episode. If you guys love the art of the visual art of storytelling, then this is it. And uh, if you guys are curious about how, as a director, a young director, how do I work with storyboard artists, you're going to get a lot of really interesting information out of today's guest uh, because he also worked with other directors like Steven Spielberg. Let me just run through some of the movies here. So he's boarded. Randomly, we'll choose Ready Player One, a Maleficent, Maleficent, there it is, Jesus Christ, dude, get this mouth to work. Uh, Warcraft, Pacific Rim Uprising, Army of Darkness, BFG, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. I asked him a bunch of shit about that. Um, and Edge of Tomorrow, his list goes on and on. And like I said, he's a screenplay writer. He knows story, which is interesting because as a storyboard artist, he's helping write the story. And we've heard Famously heard the stories of movies like Mad Max, which was scriptless and basically written with storyboards. So to have that kind of power in your disposal, to have that resource in your disposal as a director just seems awesome. So I'm excited. On today's show, we have Doug Leffer. And uh, Doug's been at it since the 70s. And uh, he's still killing it. Still doing amazing compositions, still making amazing stories. Uh, and he's so generous on today's episode. Uh, and so strap yourselves in. And before we get to that, I just want to thank everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy and following the podcast Instagram at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process P O D on Instagram. Uh, if you guys have been checking in, uh, I think this is going to come out two weeks after the videos have dropped, but uh, Gina has finished all her videos. So you're able to see the work that we've done um, with uh, the keto video, which just dropped as I'm recording this on the 6th. It dropped yesterday. Um, yeah, that video came out great. Talk about like visual storytelling. I thought that uh, her cinematographer did such a wonderful job lighting it. I thought uh, she did such a great job plotting out the sequences. And uh, it's so funny how those videos are just memeable. And I, you know, ultimately it's because B. Miller's an android. <laughs> Go back and listen to the episode where I have her on and we talk about that specifically. She just has this uh, innate ability to perform every second of a shot. Whether she's blinking to the beat, whether she's flopping herself on the floor to the beat, or she's ironically tilting her head towards the camera and just setting up a new meme <laughs> and gina and i had a lot of fun last night when the video premiered just going through her fans comments on twitter i think she's probably the most fun that i've had 
uh, watching the results of a music video for a musician that I've ever done work for. Gina's in the background. Did you have fun looking at all her comments last night? Yes. 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 Um, so yeah, if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, head on over to my Instagram account and check that out. Also, you'll find links to Gina's Instagram account and to her Gisella account. Go on over to her, to her Gisella account on Instagram now and follow it. Because there we've been posting a bunch of the behind the scenes stuff that we catch on the shoot. Um, and uh, we get to see footage of like our buddy Nick, who uh, was performing for us. He played the <laughs> he played the videographer filming her in the video, and he did such a good job playing uh, the. <laughs> I don't want to diss anybody, but he did such a good job playing the very specific type of videographer that I would work with back in the days when I did stuff for Harvard. He's like that guy that would have a two-wheeler loaded with cases and the mustache and he'd be talking about his, his weekend fishing <laughs> uh it's really great so go check it out it's uh keto and b miller steal my clothes is the name of the video you'll see it on youtube and um i don't know if it's going to be out yet but we had another video that uh is also coming out right after that it may be out this week i don't know I don't, I'm, I'm stuck. Is it, being in the DeLorean, I just feel like I just roll down the window, look out there, go, what fucking day are we at? Where are we going? What's happening? And then I'm recording these all out of sequence. What's going on? Um, in other news, I'm also prepping to direct uh, again and to direct a music video again. I don't want to get too specific about it because we're still in the contract stage as of today, trying to get it all nailed down. But uh, if it happens, it'll be fun. It'll be weird. Uh, I don't think you guys would expect it from me and um, the the team up with someone that I've worked with before uh, and she's just uh, a wonderful person and really really funny um, so I'm excited for that and uh, I also uh, want to talk a little bit and I'll do it in the ad reads but uh, my boys over at black magic hooked me up so I just got my hands on the new black magic pro 6 camera which is uh, the first camera that I've really looked into in like two years, right? Because we were locked away for a year in the pandemic. And then, um, you know, before that, it took me about a year to move out of Boston. So I really wasn't doing much shooting. And I hit this point where I'm like, ah, I'm doing another thing. What camera should I fucking shoot on? You know, and so I was doing the research and I posted on Instagram and a lot of you guys got back talking about Black Magic and the pros and the cons and what it is that you like about it. Um, and Black Magic uh, has agreed to be a sponsor on the show. Ooh, yes, a new addition to our sponsor lineup. And I will talk about that during our ad reads. So lots of fun, exciting, cool stuff happening in uh, our world here. And uh, yeah, that's it. So let's not delay it because I know how fucking good this episode is because I've already recorded it. Get ready. Grab those noise-canceling headphones uh, and uh, grab your sketch pad because maybe uh, you'll want to start drawing after you listen to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process.
Hey, Doug, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Um, very excited to have you on. I uh, stumbled across your storyboard work initially and then fell down into a hole into your Instagram account and then through your website. Um, and you've worked on, you've done a bunch of really interesting, fun stuff, worked on. seems like you've done boards for movies that I, that I love. Um, so I can't wait to crack open your brain and, and, uh, see what your life is like, man. <laughs> well, I'm ready when you are. <laughs> crack away. <laughs> it's like being on the operating table and here we go. <laughs> So, uh, for those of listeners that uh, don't really know who you are, how did you, uh, you got started uh, working for Disney initially, correct? In the illustration department? In the animation department, yes. Okay. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, I had gone to California Institute of the Arts in the uh, mid-70s, and I was one of uh, the members of the very first character animation class that uh, existed. Oh. Uh, and that was uh, uh, when I was in high school, I used to make eight millimeter movies and I did a lot of art. And I had a group of friends that I made movies with. And we had uh, we had gone to an art teacher's convention. One of our, our art teachers who was very supportive have, had offered to take us with her to this convention. Hmm. We met some people that worked for what was then called Wed Enterprises, which was the division of Disney that develops the, and makes the theme parks. Huh. They're now called Disney Imagineering. At that time, they were called Wed Enterprises, and Wed stood for Walter Elias Disney. Hmm. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Uh, we got to get a, a tour of the model shop, and we had brought uh, some of our films with us, and we offered to show them to the the gentleman who was kind enough to give us a tour and he said, Oh, I'd love to see them, but we don't have an eight millimeter projector, <laughs> to which I replied, we brought an eight millimeter projector with us. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> so we showed our films and one of the uh, show designers was passing by the conference room and stopped to watch. And he called up a guy named Ed Hansen over at uh, Walt Disney studios. He was head of personnel at the time mm -hmm. and, and suggested that he should look at what we did. And so our, our, our films were, I, I guess they were pretty ambitious for that day <laughs> in our age. <clears throat> Some of them had stop motion animation in them. Uh, so as a result of that, we got asked to submit portfolios for this new program that Disney had just started in character animation. Disney wanted to beef up their animation department because they realized it was a uh, uh, it was a cash cow for them. Right, uh, right. And Walt had kind of lost interest in, in the animated features later in his professional career because he became so enamored with the theme parks. And so they were sort of dwindling away, but they were still making money. Animated films were still making money and merchandising was always lucrative. So they wanted to restock their animation department and they decided they were already giving money to CalArts. They they decided they wanted a program there uh, that could train people that they could use. So I was a member of the very first class, and our class was kind of famous. Uh, Vanity Fair did a, a, an article about us. Huh. I think their March may have, may have been uh, 2013. Oh, no kidding. Um, and so at the end of the – it was a four-year program, but at the end of the second year, um, 
my ex-roommate came uh, to find me. My ex-roommate was this guy named Brad Bird. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, Brad said, uh, you, Jerry Reese, John Musker, and I are wanted in the dean's office. Uh, I said, are, are we in trouble? And he said, I think they're going to offer us jobs at the studio. <laughs> and I remember saying to Brad, Brad, you're crazy. They'll offer. They maybe they'll offer uh, John and Jerry jobs, but they're not going to offer you and I jobs. <laughs> but Brad was right; I was wrong, um, and we were the first four people hired out of that program, and that was 1977. Wow! Very easy to remember because it was a year Star Wars came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we all went to see that together. Now, I had actually lined up a summer job uh, that was supposed to be between my second and third year at CalArts, and that summer job was, it was going to be great. Uh, I had gotten a job as a sculptor's apprentice at WED, at the very same WED Enterprises. And I asked the studio, the Disney Studios, if I could work that summer job before I started full-time in the mm -hmm. animation department, just because I thought the experience would be worthwhile. And they agreed. So um, we, we all started at Disney, and I was there for four years. I, it was kind of a, a surprise to me to find myself there because I never intended to work in animation. Hmm. Uh, I had wanted to be Ray Harryhausen when I was younger. <laughs> uh, I can uh, so see why. I, yeah. But I, I moved from animation very quickly into uh, the story department, and I worked as a uh, as a story artist. I was drawing storyboards and but also writing and creating sequences and developing gags and business and that's great trying, trying very hard to work on the structure of the story but that was difficult since we were all just cogs in the wheel yeah how how old were you when you went in there with the with the film with the eight millimeter film that you guys had 17 or 18 i think at the time <laughs> smart man like the 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 drive and the passion to go in there with the film and then have uh, a projector on hand. Like, yeah. <laughs> we, we, uh, we were, yeah, uh, yeah, I wish I had, had uh, as much energy now as I did then. Um, <laughs> we were very ambitious and um, I don't know, we just, uh, we were always trying to think outside of the box. So Smart. Uh, of that group, by the way, I have to say, uh, there were four of us that went on that tour, and three of us ended up working at Disney. Uh, but I know all four of us, we had a group called Paragon Productions, a production company, and we're still friends, and mm -hmm. I still see them. One of them, one of that team, a guy named Bruce Morris, just moved to Malta recently, but so I don't, I'm probably not going to be seeing him anytime soon. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, I thought we, we had a pretty good average. Uh, the, and the one person that didn't go to CalArts was only because he wasn't an artist. He, oh, I see. Yeah, he has become a director, though. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, see, that it's that kind of passion. It's that kind of, like, thinking out of the box that, that really puts people in the position to get that, you know, get those offers, get that stuff. I was just, this morning, I was reading through your blogs on your website, and I read about your meeting of uh frank the legendary frank frazetta yeah oh my god man like uh and <laughs> that was a big event in my in my life yes yeah and, and you know having the having the uh, the cojones to like go over to him and at, like start to talk to him and, and try to get an autograph and go through that whole process that what was that like walk me through it what was that day like for you um 
it has started early. I, I tend to get, I, I, I'm a morning person. I do my, my best work early in the day. So I often would arrive at work early. And I think I was the first one in the office at the time. Uh, and as I <laughs> wrote about in the, in the story, uh, when I left Disney, after I worked at Disney for four years, I worked for a small production company. And um, that company shared uh, office space on the same floor with a casting agency. Uh-huh. Uh, and it, that casting agency currently was working on Fire and Ice, the film that Frank Frazetta was oh, making right. with uh, Ralph Bakshi. Right. Uh, so I... The, the thing, the thing that's weird about being around a, a casting agency is that you see people in types now. And we were on this floor that shared a courtyard with the, the casting agency, so people would come in and wait to audition, but they would come in types, and you don't generally <laughs> like just see a bunch of people the same age and the same ethnicity and the same basic body type and look together. So um, sometimes, you know, you would have have a, a bunch of uh, short, fat Italian people that were auditioning <laughs> to be a chef yeah. or people that were auditioning to be an English professor. Uh, t- totally. Cause I, I, I completely sympathize with you because I, my old office was in a casting agency building at the same time. So every, every morning we'd come in and go, well, apparently it's a call girl casting session downstairs today, or yeah. it's, or it's like mafiosos. There's a bunch of Italian yeah. guys in suits downstairs. So well, yeah, for me, my first day of going to work, this is after, like I said, I'd been hired right out of art school and I worked for four years in the insular environment of, of Disney Animation Studios. Mm-hmm. So my first day on the job, on this new job, I came to the office to find the courtyard full of about 20 beautiful, voluptuous, almond-eyed, dark-haired women in string bikinis. <laughs> and they were all there to audition to be Frazetta Girls. Yeah, I was going to say, perfect. That's amazing. I, yeah, so I remember thinking, is this what the outside world is like? <laughs> so it was some months after that that I was in my office and I heard voices in the corridor outside and I looked up and I saw the casting director, a guy named Dennis, I uh, can't remember Dennis's last name, uh, there was a, another guy, taller and louder, who I recognized immediately as Ralph Bakshi. I had met him some years earlier, just from being in the animation world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third person was a, a shorter, uh, but much more fit man, a little bit older and a lot more uh, fit than the other two. And he was pretty quiet. But Bakshi stopped abruptly outside my window and looked in, because I had all of these full color pastel illustrations for the project I was working on, on my walls. Mm-hmm. And back, she said, uh, Jesus Christ, what's this? <laughs> and uh, Dennis said, Oh, it's this uh, project. These guys are working on it's, uh, it's some, uh, live action feature fantasy film thing. And back, she said, uh, looks good enough to steal. And then he walked on <laughs> Dennis walked on. But the, the third man lingered and stood out there looking at, at the art for a few moments longer. I guess where I was sitting, nobody actually saw that I was in the office at that time. Like I said, it was pretty early. Yeah. And then later in the day, one of my coworkers came and said, you know, that that, that uh, Pazetta was going to come by, that the, the boss of our company was going to give him a tour. And I know that our boss and, and Dennis, the casting agency, knew each other. So that wasn't surprising. Right. But my co-worker was bummed out because 
he had been instructed not to ask Frazetta for his autograph because <laughs> our, the, the guy that ran our company thought that would be unprofessional. Mm-hmm. And I said, you and I never had this conversation. <laughs> Leave my office, forget that we talked. And he was like, well, you're not going to disregard the order. I said, I never heard the order. Go away. <laughs> and so when, when Frazetta came and, and he was talking to me, and he was very friendly, and he asked what medium I was working in and i said i was working in pastel but yeah uh, just because it was quick uh, and it was also it was a technique i'd learned from a an artist named mel shaw who worked at disney hmm. uh, and i remember for that saying yeah well, i paint with mud <laughs> uh, and so, I, I at some point i pulled out my book i just i had it there and i said um, could i get your autograph and <laughs> i i my boss was standing in the doorway. I didn't make eye contact with him. I just acted innocent. Uh, but when he saw how gracious Rosetta was about signing my book, he turned to the other employee and said, okay, get your books. <laughs> and uh, it's important to know that none of us knew that Frank was coming by this day. And so if you're surprised that we all had the the Valentine book, uh, The Fantastic Art of Frank Frazetta, in our offices, all I can say is in 1981, everybody did, at least everybody in my industry. <laughs> yeah. Frazetta was such a, a huge influence. And most of us that that time could divide our artistic progression into before we saw our first Frank Frazetta painting and after we saw it. Yeah, because he was huge, huge at he that was. point. Yeah, and he was. Yeah, he was such a powerful influence. So much so that when I was young, I could remember looking at his stuff in amazement and kind of being depressed, because it was not like it was not like I wanted to be able to draw like Frank Frazetta. It was more like I couldn't imagine wanting to draw like anybody other than Frank Frazetta, and he had already done it. So it was. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it was so intimidating and inspiring. Um, I, and it, it, it was fun. Uh, he, when he signed my book, he, it was interesting because he, he wrote the inscription, but he sketched his signature. I mean, his process, like what he was just writing, like we all write, and then he got to his signature and it was like little short crisp lines like you, you would do when you were drawing, not when you were writing. Um, yeah it's fascinating i've had so many really great experiences with artists that i've respected and loved either through directing or or being in uh in situations with like comic cons and stuff and um i i remember uh getting a piece or purchasing a piece from jeff darrows who's an amazing illustrator who uh, for those of you listening did like uh like the hard-boiled comic books back in the day um, with uh, right. Frank Miller. And then he also did the concept work for a lot of the Matrix stuff. And uh, he draws in such a fascinating way. He actually starts in the center with details. He doesn't actually do, uh, you know, uh, sketching where you're, you're just rough sketching edges so you understand the borders that you're drawing in. He'll, he'll start on details and work his way out. And he signs his name backwards. <laughs> so it's really strange wow. to watch. Uh, I've known a few artists like that, and it, it it seems to me like they're cheating somehow. Like they have an, <laughs> yeah. they have an overhead projector in yeah. their brain, and the drawing's already finished, and they're just tracing it onto the paper. It's crazy uh, when you watch yeah. it. You're just like, what are you plugged into? 
there's some sort of like current that he's just I accessing. I advise people to try to draw that way. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I've had training myself and my limited amount of uh, skill that I do when I do either my own storyboards or my stuff, I have to have point of reference for stuff. Yeah. You know, I just can't. Uh, it just seems like such a strange way of thinking. And then you ask, you know, when when you're when you're young, I think you naturally draw that way, kind of starting just sort of in the middle or at the corner. Or you just start drawing. The uh, that's true. That's true. From that, I remember one of the first times I was in an art class with somebody who was actually in a real classically trained artist and painter. Who uh, it was like a. Um, like a weekend class, uh, like a community thing at, at the beach in Santa Barbara. <clears throat> this guy, I can't remember his name now, and his wife conducted this class. And uh, my first day there, and I was sketching something. I was drawing a still life because they had some <clears throat> some still life set up. I was sketching a, a face. Mm -hmm. And he came over and looked at it. And he said, wow, this is good. And called his wife over to look and say, wow, you've really got that talent. You're going to be good when you learn how to draw. <laughs> and I remember, well, what do you mean when I learn how to draw? I'm the one in the family that draws. That's how I identify myself. I'm, everybody says I'm the one that draws. What do you mean when I learn how to draw? Uh -huh. And he put a fresh piece of paper over and he said, okay, let's start from the basics. Here's how you proportion this. So I'm going to make a mark showing the top and the bottom of the base on the drawing. And then look at where the halfway point is. And he started to just like block out the the proportions of what I was drawing. And I remember it was like magic, yeah. what he was revealing. I had never thought of that. It's like, oh, there's a technique to make sure things are in proportion. Yeah. Why that had never, I mean, I was pretty young at the time, but I just remember what a revelation that was at the time. Yeah, no, me too. I had a very similar scenario with that where, you know, portioning out just a face and understanding you know, halfway through the face is generally where the eyes are. And you can break those proportions if you need to, but sure. But it's, you know, having that guide. So when you're sitting down and staring at a blank piece of paper, you're just like sketch, sketch, sketch. Okay, got it. Yeah. And yeah. I know where things are placed. And I, I assume that for you, that comes in handy when you're storyboarding, because uh, I, I really want to dig into that with you. Sure. Um, because I've, I've done some of my own storyboard work and I'm about to do a feature film in which I have to work with storyboard artists. And so, um, let me start by asking you, uh, how do you, so when you get hired to work on a project or on a film and you've done some, from what I've seen on your website, you've done some amazing stuff like Ready Player One, uh, you've done stuff for like Sam Raimi, uh, mm -hmm. and then the Godzilla King of the Monsters, by the way, the boards that you did for that, those are some of my favorite sequences. Um, thank you. So how does it how does it start for you? Do you sit down with the director and the director sort of walks you through what he thinks the scene's going to be like, or do you just uh, like go right at it by reading the script? Um, the big question. <laughs> the simple answer is it's it's always different. Yeah. Uh, there are some directors that will sit down with you and go through shot by shot and describe what they want. Um, in my experience, those are few and far between, and. Uh, a lot of directors, even if they can do that, opt not to because they would, at least working with me, they'd rather see what I come up with first before they start telling me what to do. Right. Uh, one of the things that's very important to remember, though, when you uh, approach the task of storyboarding something is that 
Our job as storyboard artists is not to illustrate the script. Our job is to translate it. The visual language is has its own idioms from the written language. And, and I, I know this in particular because I'm also a writer and I have been in the position where I have written something. I had to write it in order for it to get approved so it could go into production. And is so when you write a script, you have to write something in a language that everybody can understand. Mm. If you describe it exactly the way you want it to appear in film, the script would be so dense it would be unreadable. So yeah. you write, you put on your salesman hat partially. You're trying to communicate your idea in as clear and as uh, simple terms as possible so everybody can get it. Uh, and then when I would take off my writing hat, if once the script was approved and was going to go in production, and I had a few opportunities where I, when I was working in television, I got to direct something that I wrote. Um, so I took off my writing hat and I put on my storyboard hat and I immediately started cursing the writer for the stupid things that just like, I would never actually stage it this way. <laughs> Why did I write it this way? <laughs> but I realized it is, it's a different language. You write in a different language when you're, when you begin to write in a visual language, it is in, it's like translating poetry. If you take every idea that's in the script, uh, beat for beat, it would be like trying to translate a poem from French to English with a dictionary and just going word by word. You right. would kill the poetry. You would kill the intent of the poem. And the same thing can happen in storyboarding. And I think uh, there's there are a lot of professional storyboard artists that do approach the process this way. I think it's one of the reasons I've had the, the success I've had. I've had the opportunities to do other things like direct and produce, mm -hmm. uh, primarily because of the way I approached the, the process. I think of it as writing more than I think of it as, as illustrating. That's fascinating. Yeah, because, <clears throat> you know, my my style as a director is I, I really love the visual language of cinema and I love the history that comes with um, each of the techniques that are used and how the audience subconsciously thinks about these specific techniques. So like if you're using a, like a specific lens that's been used a certain way for over 100 years and, and people understand what that lens means or if you're doing a dolly in or if you're you're doing a move from left to right that comes with certain connotations and mm -hmm. and i love that stuff I, it's it's the most exciting aspect of of movie making to me it's like how do i subconsciously uh, uh tell the audience what is happening here and who's in charge and who's controlling the sequence and is all that stuff in mind for you when you go through and you look at a script or are you just are you just drawing out what you first see in your head uh it a lot of that becomes like uh, I would compare it to anatomy and drawing or structure in writing. Okay. Uh, it, when you learn to, to draw, you, there's a lot of value in studying the skeletal system and musculature. And if you were to take a pose and draw the skeleton first and draw all the muscle groups over that and then draw the clothing on top of that, you would learn a lot and you would you would get a lot of technical knowledge. That drawing would probably be stiff and lifeless because of the <laughs> way you approached it. But if you do that enough, you get to the point where the, the structure, the anatomy uh, is ingrained in you enough that you don't have to think about it and you can think just about the expression, uh, the right. attitude, the emotion of the pose and the character that you're trying to capture. I think the same way as 
about writing and you write stories, it's very good to do to write a story with a real classic structure, three act structure, and where you plot out all of your your turning points and uh, <clears throat> your uh, uh, unexpected turns and reversals. Uh, and uh, once you've done that, once you've written a story like that, you will learn a lot from it. Mm-hmm. But it will probably be like that anatomical drawing. It will probably not work. Right. I mean, most stories don't work. But if you do it, if you if you understand structure well enough, you can get to the point where as you're writing the same as, as you're drawing, you can just think about what it is you're trying to express, what the, the, the emotion you're trying to express. And I feel the same way about the cinematic language. You're right. The different lenses, different camera moves, and especially the different... Uh, camera heights that you pick yes. are, are all say something, all affect the way you experience what's going on in front of you. You kind of need to know that well enough that when you sit down with the sequence, you don't have to consciously think about it, that you can just rely on that at the same way you understand that the skeletal structure of the human body is underneath your drawings when you're drawing a figure. Yeah, no, it's fascinating because I'm I I've been doing a new process for me, um, where I've been uh, like doing a lot more for director's prep and actually pulling apart sequences and looking for mm-hmm. like the emotional event and and really sort of just before I would sit down with a with a script that I had and I'd start drawing what I saw in my head and that would be just sort of coming from my initial read and how I reacted to it. But now when I do this prior work, which is just basically notes on a page of like, okay, who's in, who, like, how's the emotion being transferred here? Who's in charge? What's happening? Mm-hmm. And then I have all that in my head. I'm excited now to go to the storyboarding process because I feel like that's going to inform my coverage and inform my angles and inform all of that stuff even more than just my initial, like, sit down and this is what I first saw when I read the script. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when, one of the toughest things for me, especially when I'm working on a, you know, like a Marvel movie or something, is to get them to let me to read, read the script. And <laughs> really? Most people don't read the scripts when they're working on sequences. I think a lot of times when people are doing storyboards or previs, or they'll just read the sequence that they're doing. And to me, that's like saying, I'm just going to work on the top left-hand corner of this painting and somebody else will do the rest of it. It's crazy. The story is a complete composition. Uh, so every part of it affects every other part of it. So the very first thing that you need to do is just be very familiar with the the beginning, middle, and end of your story and who all the characters are. Yeah. That will inform every scene that you do. That's fascinating that the, the, that, that doesn't always happen. And honestly, it, it kind of makes a little bit of sense for a lot of the sequences that you see designed in some of those bigger movies where it's just like, okay, so this is just popcorn sequence? Ah, got it. <laughs> Because yeah. because half the time you you know what it's kind of like uh, it's like musical numbers in really an old fashioned stage musicals like going back I don't know like the Ziegfeld Follies or something uh-huh. uh, before before the musical numbers were incorporated into the storytelling it's like okay we had the comedy we had the drama now we're going to stop the show and we're going to do a musical number then we'll continue it again and a lot of times in big budget films you feel that way like okay you had the characters they were talking they were doing things now we're starting the action scene and this is going to feel like somebody else shot it right 
Right. 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 But it's, which is very true. And I've talked about that with a bunch of different folks on the show, whether it's like second unit directors and there's a big divide, I think, on these larger films where sometimes, not all the time, directors are, are brought on that have never done action before and they brought on because they made like a really great little emotional indie piece and then they're expected to just sort of corral the yeah. talent and the emotional moments and then really it's the concept artists and then the second unit team that really does all the action and all the all the most memorable sequences to it so it's something like i don't want to get specific but i've heard about uh movies that that's the case on yeah well that that's often the case uh, it, it's interesting because the profession of directing has changed over the years. I would say uh, up through the, the mid to late 70s, um, the director was was more of a generalist. He had to know a little bit about everything uh, mm -hmm. and he had to have some managerial skills and taste. Uh, and if... If you could do that, uh, you could be one of the few people that that were fortunate enough to direct. Uh, in those days, there were few, very few directors that people knew by name. Alfred mm -hmm. Hitchcock, maybe, right. but even you know John Ford uh, or William Wyler. Most of the public, they didn't know who that was. David Lean, they maybe some people knew him, but. Mm -hmm. Prior to Spielberg and Lucas, uh, nobody knew who the directors were. Uh, and then with with Spielberg and Lucas, when they came on and Jaws happened, uh, E.T. and Close Encounters and, of course, Star Wars, mm -hmm. uh, we entered into the fanboy director. <laughs> These were people that grew up uh, on cinema and had a almost uh, encyclopedic knowledge of what had come before, which they drew upon. Uh, and there were some great films that were made as a result of that passion that they brought. These were people who grew up wanting to make movies. Yeah. And maybe the, the most negative thing that you could say about them was a lot of times they directed the camera more than they directed the cast. Like they were so into, you know, like the mechanics of it. That, yes. Uh, they didn't let everybody just do their job well <laughs> you know they micromanaged it but now i feel like we're more into the era of compartmentalized directing where uh, as you said a lot of times a director for a big company will be hired because they have done a smaller film that has gotten them noticed that they have they have just enough cachet that the cast is excited about working with them yeah but not enough experience that they're willing to let the producers dictate the expensive parts of the movie that are going to be the thing that really gets people to come into the theaters and right and, well, or watch on a streaming service now Okay, it is that time. Time to take a break. Start to talk about sponsors. Start to talk about the men and women that help support the show. And before you click the skip forward button, please just click on the links below the episode. Follow through. Click on the links for our sponsors. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. Click on the links underneath the episode there. 
if you are showing traffic, then my sponsors continue. It's important. And I don't ask you guys to reach in your pocket to pay the show. Um, but uh, it's a great way to keep my shit afloat. You know what I mean? Um, so first up, good friends over at Puget Systems. If you are in the marketplace for a brand new computer, if your old computer is giving you that pinwheel of death and you're, you're, you're sweating it, you're going, oh man, how much is it gonna cost me for a new system? Let me go check out the top of the line system uh, that everybody uses, the big company that everybody seems to be brainwashed by. Go to their website and then choose between, you know, one of three selections. And guess what? The next thing you know, you're about $10,000, $15,000 in debt. <laughs> it doesn't need to be that way. Build yourself a PC. Uh, I know that in the past, building a PC sounded like, oh my God, it's just system crashes and everything else. No, we're talking about a stable, custom-built PC that works for the software that you're using. Imagine that. Like you're actually building something specifically for the tasks that you need. You're not choosing, you're not going to Walmart and going, okay, so there are only three chairs here. I need a chair that fits three people and only these ones only fit two people. So I'll buy the two person chair and then I'll buy this additional chair and I'll try to cram them on my front porch, right? That's the life that we live these days where the people manufacturing products are sort of pigeonholing us, forcing us into these tiny little boxes and saying, okay, you gotta work within this box. Well, fuck you, man. I want to dictate to you what I need as an artist. And that's why I like PCs. And that's why I like Puget Systems. I did the search because I don't want to build my own PCs anymore. I want a system that's reliable. I want customer support. Uh, I want to show. I want it to show up, take it out of its box, and set it up. Push the power button and get going. And uh, Puget Systems had the best selections on the market. There's the smaller family-owned company. Um, so when you're talking to them and customer support, you're actually getting real people on the phone. Uh, and these guys love, 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 love the PC community. So they're consistently and constantly posting all their benchmark tests. They're talking about issues that a lot of their clients are having. They go back into the community and go, what do you guys think about this? So go to PugetSystems.com if you're someone that builds your own PCs just to find the resources and the answers to the questions that you're stumbling upon as you're going through the process of building your own computer. I cannot say enough great things about them. Puget System has supported me since the beginning. I have been cutting on a Puget System for ages. I think my oldest system now is like seven years old. And we just started to run into a couple of issues. And I'm now talking to the guys and they're like, okay, let's talk about whether or not we can upgrade this thing. How cool is that? When's the last time you talked to Apple and said, hey guys, I'm getting the fucking pinwheel of death. Do you think we can upgrade this? They'll go throw it away. There's an island in the ocean built of those things and we need some, we need some more real estate on it. So toss it in the ocean. <laughs> they don't actually say that. I'll get fucking sued. But you know what I mean, right? So play it smart. Head on over to PewDieSystems.com. Check them out. Also supporting the show as always, our good friends over at Quasar Science. Uh, one of the best advancements in the movie industry has been lighting over the past 10 years and these guys build the best LED units on the market. Uh, head on over to Quasar Science and look for a unit that works for you. I've got rainbow LED tubes. I've got bicolor tubes. I've got tubes that are magnetized that can stick on metal and hide in different places. Uh, all programmable. You can tie them together, run all sorts of different patterns through them. Super low profile, very lightweight. They don't emit heat, which is wonderful for your talent. And look, 
I know that there's a bunch of you out there that are like, yeah, no, Mike, I grew up in the LED world. This has been around for like 10 years, man. And I've been around forever, like 10 years, man. Yeah, I know. For those of us that come from the old school ways, which is the tungsten and the HMIs and the Kina flows, it's pretty, still pretty magical stuff. I was joking around with someone who was working with a big famous cinematographer. Was I talking to Lance? Probably Lance. Big famous cinematographer who was just enamored by like controlling everything by his phone. I find that so charming with all these older cinematographers. They're like, check this out, pull out their phone and they're just like, boop. <laughs> in the past, they used to have to like walk over, climb a fucking ladder, burn their hands and put another gel on that light. <laughs> so it's huge. It's really cool. But take this into consideration. I know this is a read for, for uh, Quasar, but there is still real estate. There's still room for those older units and those older units definitely give off a different quality of light. So I like to mix my kit with a bit of everything. And oftentimes I'll, sh I'll still shoot with an HMI. I'll get like a, a Joker 800 with a Chimera on the front of it for my daylight balance because I like what that does. I like how it pushes through that Chimera. I like that combination, but then I'll supplement it. I'll edge light it with a Quasar tube, right? Or maybe I'll light the background with Quasar tubes. Or if you get a bunch of Quasar tubes, then I'll put those together and then put that through some grid or I'll put that through some diffusion. And then that in itself has its own different texture. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but run your hand. If you ever have the opportunity to either be on set or go into a rental house and try out a bunch of stuff. I haven't done it here in California, but I used to do it back at home. Those of you listening on the East Coast, I'd head over to Red Sky and uh, I would set up a bunch of lights and do some light tests and I just run my hands through them. And you can see how each one of the units, how each one of the different types, tungsten, HMI, fluorescent, and uh, LED, how those edge lights wrap around your skin and how, I wanna say how crisp that, that highlight line is, right? It's fascinating. Some lights, when you put your hands in front of it, your skin feels more metallic. And then you're talking to like this pink white dude when you, when you put someone with darker pigment in front of those lights, it's fucking fascinating. It's fascinating to see. I love light, lighting darker skin tones with LEDs and, and fluorescence uh, because what happens with the darker skin tone is it acts as a mirror. It actually reflects those, those sources back at you, which is so fucking cool. Um, I, I can get nerdy about lighting. I love lighting. Uh, just do yourself a favor, head on over to Quasar Science and check out all the new shit, right? Click the link below the episode. Let them know that I'm sending you do that. Uh, all right. Big news. As I said at the beginning of the episode, big news, new sponsor, new sponsor, new sponsor, new sponsor, big sponsor, big time fucking sponsor for the show. Exciting. Black fucking magic. Black magic is sponsoring the podcast. Let me say that again. Black Magic is sponsoring the podcast. Ooh, such a little, little podcast that started back in my attic in Boston. Now out, we're out here in Los Angeles, and now I've got fucking Black Magic as a sponsor for the show. I'm sure they like the fact that I dropped an F-bomb twice in their ad rate. <laughs> uh, so very excited to work with these guys. Like I said, they sent me over a brand new Black Magic Pro 6 camera 6k recording lots of really fascinating stuff with it it actually shoots raw it also shoots ProRes within it 
which is great. I'm very excited about that. I got the EF mount, which is uh, a Canon mount for those of you who don't know. So for Canon lenses to put it on there, but see this little slick motherfucker. When I was buying DSLRs back in the day and when I was a photographer back in the day, I decided to go Nikon specifically knowing that Nikon lenses can be adapted to Canon bodies. You can't go the other way around. You can't take Canon lenses and go to Nikon. So I knew that when I was buying all my glass back in the day, it would always be able to be converted to Canon because I knew that Canon was at the forefront of video. So now I've got the best of all worlds. I can get all sorts of really old school, cool Nikon glass that I grew up loving as a, as a still photographer and then adapt those lenses to the Canon cameras, but now to my Blackmagic, which is super cool. Simple little adapter, bam. I've got my super sexy Sigma macro close focus 24 millimeter that I've used on so many projects. I love that lens. Love, 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 love that lens. There's something really nice about shooting uh, uh, wide, but also doing a close up. So the old Michael Mann game, right? Where like he's like right, focuses like right on the edge of the dude's glasses, on uh, Russell Crowe's glasses and the, and the insider as he's walking out of that place after realizing or ratting on the big tobacco and you're just riding on that and you're so close and you're so intimate with the character, but you're also seeing the scale and scope of the world around him. Fucking love that shit, man. So very excited. Just got the camera a couple days ago, unpacked it, learning it teaching myself some stuff, getting it into place, and uh, gonna hopefully shoot this uh, new project with it. So I will keep you guys informed, um, and I'll, I'll talk to these guys. We'll see if we can get some deals and make some stuff happen for the listeners of the show. Big shout out to the dudes over Black Magic. I hopefully will have the links below the episode. Click on them. For the love of Christ, click on them. <sighs> Bad. I feel like an old. I feel like an old mom. Bad. Bad. Don't touch that. Click on it. That's what I need you to do. Uh, all right. And um, let's see. That's it. Let's get back to the show. Lots more great stuff. Hanging out with Doug. fascinating stuff yeah and you're right because uh, you know i grew up you know being a fanboy of ridley scott and being a fanboy of you know spielberg and all those guys and 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 then this new generation of of dudes like me who come from the music video world and come from the visual side of things um it took me a long time to sort of come around to do the directing talent and and to understand how to work with actors and, and understand how to craft those things um, so it's, it's fascinating how obsessed we are as a culture, I think, with visuals and pretty images. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and in our business, and not everybody in our business, because a lot of people go to be a director from being an actor or from being a writer. Everybody comes at it from a different angle. But a lot of the dudes that I know, a lot of the people that I've worked with come from a visual side of it. And it took years, because I've been doing it for 20 years now. It took years for me to get to a point where... 
<laughs> I said it on a prior episode that uh, actors weren't just scared little unicorns hiding in a corner that I wasn't going to scare away with my camera, you know? <laughs> Is it interesting. Uh, my wife and I were actually just talking about this because uh, when I started directing, it really su surprised and I think bothered or not bothered, but worried her because she couldn't imagine me working with actors because I was <laughs> I was an artist. She was the daughter of an art teacher that she was comfortable mm -hmm. uh, living with an artist. Um, she didn't know what it would be like living with a director and she couldn't imagine me talking to actors. <laughs> I remember the first time I directed main unit, I was actually, I was in New Zealand and I was working on one of the first five uh, TV movies of Hercules, uh, The Legendary Journeys. Oh, no kidding. I had told the, the lead, Kevin Sorbo, um, that I wanted to be an actor's director. And after I did that, he, I heard other cast members saying, oh, I, we're so excited. We heard we had an actor's director directing us this time. And I said, I remember thinking like, wait, all I had to do was say I was an actor's director or not even that. I said I wanted to be an actor's director. And now suddenly I'm being imbued with uh, abilities and experience and insights that I don't have. <laughs> I mean, I've never been an actor. I will never be an actor. It's just I don't possess that gene that makes me want to get in front of the camera. I'm quite comfortable behind the camera. Right, right, right. I, but I did find I enjoyed the process of working with cast. Uh, and I think I was pretty good at it. And I ultimately had a chance of directing three Academy Award winning actors and none of them got an Academy Award on anything I directed, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I directed Anthony Quinn with the first Academy Award winning director I, I directed on that, that very first movie that I did, which was a little intimidating. Wow. Yeah, no, that's crazy. The, uh, here's a question for you. So you did Hercules. Wasn't Hercules, Hercules was produced by Sam Raimi's company, right? Wasn't yes. that all part of Sam? So is that the, so you did boards for Army of Darkness and The Quick and the Dead. Is that yeah. the origins of your relationship with Sam Raimi? Was yeah, it I started on Army of Darkness and I, I got to direct second unit on Army of Darkness. That was my first Fine. directing game. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. Uh, yeah, and the way that, well, first of all, the way it came about that I worked with him is uh, Sam was doing this movie, and there was a company called Intravision, which was a front projection process uh, company. I had worked with them prior to Army of Darkness a, a few times. Mm -hmm. And because I had wanted to be Harry Hosman when I was a kid, I understood sort of front projection, rear projection, a, a lot of the old school techniques. Right. I knew what I knew how it worked and I knew what its limitations were. Uh, the company sold their process as a panacea. It's like we can do this is this is the technique this, you can do anything with this technique. And then they would turn to me and say, don't draw anything we can't do. <laughs> so I, I was hired to work with Sam Raimi. I was hired by the visual effects company with the directive. Don't draw anything for Sam that we can't do with our our system. Uh -huh. And it was a strange position to be in because if Sam had hired me directly, probably the first thing I would have done is try to convince him to go someplace else because I, front projection had a lot of limitations for what he was trying to do. Uh, but, but anyways, um, <laughs> we had a very good experience working together 
and we we got to the the climax of the film and sam wasn't happy with the what was in the script but he was he and his brother ivan were the writers of it and he didn't have time to rewrite it because he was in pre-production and Mm -hmm. things were just really hectic at that time uh so he wasn't sure uh, what he was going to do and i said well, Sam, why don't you let me try to restructure it in the storyboard phase based hmm. on our discussions? And we had talked through some versions of it. And his his feeling was he liked the different ideas we were coming up with. He just didn't know when he was going to have time to write them. So I said, let me just see if I can construct it in the drawing. Now, this is something I had done out and I was... Um, Going back to when I was at Disney, when I was in the animation department at Disney, we were writing the movie and with the storyboards. That was that was my origin in this right. in this business. I started off as the person that was making up the story, and then the writer would come in afterwards to clean up the dialogue and actually put it in a script form for production reasons. But we did all of the inventing of the material, all of the writing of the material, just on little pieces of paper that where we would do a drawing, we would write out a line of dialogue, we'd pin them up onto the the, uh, Solitex boards that we hung all around the story department. Mm -hmm. So that was my experience. That was, that was my, um, the training that I had, that I brought to this. So for me to work, uh, to approach the storyboard process as a writer was, uh, that was my first instinct always. So I, basically took everything that we already had and I just restructured it and I had to connect it back together with some new material. But it was essentially what Sam had before just structured so that it had more of an emotional build build to it. And when I showed that to Sam, he was really pleased. He was really excited by it. Uh, I think partially because I kept all the pieces that he liked, <laughs> the other versions, some of which he thought he was going to lose. But he really did feel like it had a much more of an emotional connection now. And he said, I feel like I need to give you a writing credit on this film because what you what you did is writing. Yeah. That's I was surprised. And, and I said uh, that I didn't think that was appropriate, not because I didn't think that's what I had done, but I just... Nobody had ever acknowledged it before. So Sam said, how about if I give you three days of second unit to direct instead? And I said, that I'll take. <laughs> wow, that's cool, man. And, and then that three days turned into three weeks and then and <laughs> Sam and I are still working together. That's so rad, man. And when you when you first sat down with Sam, as far as like like talking about story and illustrating for story, Sam's got like a very specific visual style. Did mm-hmm. did he uh, describe that sort of style through sequences to you, or was it just you looking back at his old material and going, "I think Sam's going to kind of like it if I do this," or if it's like a whip pan or like a intense zoom? Like, was he specific about it, or was it, was it a combination of the two of you? There were things that he was very specific about, and I tried to be true to them. But one thing I, I have to say about my approach to working with a, a director, and, and this is true for <clears throat> for Sam Raimi or Steven Spielberg or a first-time director, mm-hmm. I never start off by trying to think what the director wants or what the director would like. 
I never did that with Spielberg when I was working with him on BFG or on Ready Player One. Right. I only approached it. The only question I would ask myself is what what does the story want? I always think of that I work for the story. I don't work for the producer, the director. If they tell me not to do that, they tell me they want something very specific, I'll, I'll give them that. Mm-hmm. But I never start off thinking, what does the director want here? I always start off thinking, what does the story want? What would be good for the story? And if you start from that basis, then you can add the embellishment, the, the cinematic language of the specific gags and details. But there were a lot of times when I was working with both of those, with Spielberg and with uh, and with Sam, or with John Woo, or many other directors that I've had the so pleasure insane. of working with. Yeah. Uh, where I would be saying, like, calling them back, like, yeah, I don't know, Sam. <laughs> you kind of, don't you think we really kind of need to be with the character here? And, you know, and sometimes they would override me. Sometimes they would say, yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what you want as a, as a director working with a storyboard artist is you want someone that is bringing, you know, a, a different perspective to it, but also, you know, being uh, so hyper-focused on the character and the characterization yeah. for stuff. It's, yeah, it's so interesting. It's, for- well, there was a lot of times with, with Spielberg when I would preface, preface something I was going to pitch to him by saying, can I present something to you that you might hate? <laughs> yeah. And whenever I did that, he'd get this grin on his face. And he'd say, yes, please. <laughs> because he knew I was going to tell him an idea he would not think of himself. Yeah. And I would say 50% of the time when I did that, he'd say, yeah, okay, I see where you're going. I'm not going to do that. Here's why. And he usually had very good reasons for not doing something. But the times he, he did embrace it, it became something that was really a special part of, of the scene. Yeah. Uh, and I think that you do a disservice to your director, even to, I think people do a disservice to Spielberg or anybody else of his caliber, not that there's that many people of his caliber, but by not, uh, not trying to, I, I think by trying to, to second guess what they want, you're doing them a disservice. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I get that. I 100% they can get come that. Up, they can come up with the idea that they would do. <laughs> you should present something as much as possible that that supports the story. Uh, and it's not like you're trying to think of weird things that nobody else would have thought of. You just like go back to the, the story. What would What's specific about the moment? What's specific about these characters? And the best gags, the best bits of business are are moments that belong so much to that one sequence, that one scene, that there's no way you could take them out of that context and put them somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Put them in, I mean, put them in like another, another film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my notion, it's interesting, I love having you on here because I can ask you a bunch of questions. Uh, my notion is if I was to sit down with you and, and obviously I'd give you the full script and have you read the whole script because I think that's important. I don't know why you wouldn't. And, the, and then my notion would be, okay, here's this sequence. Let me explain emotionally where I think the characters are. Let me explain where I like emotionally think the, uh, the key points are and uh, you know where I think the attention should be or who should be running the scene. Is that stuff useful to you or, or would you rather just go at it cold? Uh, that no, I would think that would be useful. I'm not really sure anybody's ever actually done that. 
Wait, really? <laughs> Partially because, yeah, oddly enough, I mean, the few times I've worked with direct, well, in in my career, I have worked with a lot of inexperienced directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was even before I had directed anything myself, I had a reputation for somebody that you gave to a first-time director that I would help them through the process. Right. Uh, so the times when I got to work with a director that really knew what they were doing, I like working with John Woo was an amazing experience. He had made so many movies by the time I did Hard Target with him. Oh, you did Hard Target. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was his, his first. Which Sam Raimi's company produced. And oh, Sam had asked me to. Yes, here's the Sam scene. and Rob Tappert had asked me to um, to work with John on that. And I was a fan of John's Hong Kong film. So, it actually. Okay, so this is a really good example. So, at the time, I was. I'd just taken a job working on Hocus Pocus for Disney. <laughs> okay. And I, uh, I would just. They called up. I wasn't doing anything at the time. Uh, so, I said yes. And they just wanted me to, to storyboard visual effects sequences. Um, wow. A week after I started on that film, uh, a director that I had worked with before named Rachel Talalay called me up and said, I'm doing my first studio film called Ghost in the Machine. And if you will, we're starting it, I need you to start right away. But if you agree to do it, I'll let you do second unit, or at least half the second unit on it. Wow. So I had to say yes to that, even though I had already committed to doing this other film. Mm-hmm. And then a week after that, Rob Tapper called me up and said, John Wu is doing his first American movie. We'd like you to storyboard it for him. That's and crazy. I had to say yes to that. So I was doing these three films at the same time. <laughs> and they damn near killed me. On Hocus Pocus, I never met the director. I never sat down with him. I never had any discussions with him. They just kept, I was working through the visual effects people at Disney Mm. and they would bring me sequences. And I would say, uh, does the director want to give me any feedback? I mean, do do I have any indication? Does he like static cameras? Does he want to move the camera? I said, no, he likes what you're doing. Just keep going. I never got any direction, never got any feedback. I just got the script pages. And I mean, I did. I read the whole script, so I knew it all fit together. But I just created the sequences and handed them over. Right. And then I was, and I was trying to do them as fast as possible because I wanted to get off of that film so I could focus on the other two. <laughs> John Woo, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and because I was going so fast, I came into work one day. They said, oh, we let one of the other board artists go. And I said, what? <laughs> She said, well, you're going so fast, we didn't need her. And I, oh, geez, you should have fired me and kept her. I was like, uh, uh, backfired I, on I, you. I, I was going to quit, actually, because I felt so bad that another artist had lost their, her job because of, yeah. of me. And so I said, I was going to quit. But they said, well, if you quit, we have to fire the other artist, too, because you're a senior and he's a he's a junior. We can't have a junior artist. I know there was some union rule at the time, and I, I guess it was a union project I was working right, on. Right, right. So I, I just, I had to grin and bear it. And, and, uh, but the com, but the, the real difference there was between uh, working on the Hocus Pocus where I never met the director or had a conversation with the director or got any guidance from the director to working with John Wu where I was sitting next to him and he would talk through each shot. 
in describing. He had very specific reasons for doing things and pearls of wisdom along the way. Like, you know, he would say things like, uh, you know, if you're working with stuntmen, because I he worked with stuntmen a lot, who and you needed to get a performance, like a reaction shot from a stuntman who's probably not a good actor, shoot the reaction in slow motion because it looks like they're acting more than they really are. Yeah, smart. And I was thinking, now that's just something you learn from making yeah. a pile of movies and, yeah. and doing it so much and trying different things. But he knew so much about what, what he could do with camera speeds and camera angles, and he had it all in his head. But he was still very collaborative, so I would draw everything, and, and when, if he hesitated on something or something he hadn't thought through, I would like jump in and present ideas. Oh, fascinating. And, uh, uh, yeah, that was a great experience. And then I did get a chance to direct some of the second unit on that film when, he was, when they were in post-production, and he was in the editing room, and they needed to do some pickup stuff. That's so cool, man. That's so that's what a great leverage that you had to like be a great storyteller on the page and then be able to go do second unit. That's so great. I had heard rumor. I read this article about what happened with that movie that uh, when John Woo came over, apparently the production team or the producers or the financiers or whoever it was really didn't trust him 100 percent. And so then they hired Sam Raimi to like basically babysit him and from what i read in this article and who knows if it's true or not um but then apparently sam raimi was like this guy's great <laughs> so he was like just kind of helping him along with the project does that does any of that make any sense being someone that worked on it all well i i can imagine the studio being nervous about it because the idea of, of hiring somebody from another country that had imperfect english would would yeah. terrify any studio executive uh, at that time working, you know, in Hollywood. Uh, yeah. I'm also, I, I, 100%, I believe, well, Sam Sam and, and Rob, and producer, were very much aware of, of John's work. Uh, I think they thought it was a big coup to be able to produce his first American movie. Hell yeah. And Sam is not a guy, as a producer, he doesn't interfere with other directors. Uh, if If there's any way that he can avoid it, he wants to give them their latitude and i'm sure he felt like he could learn things from john woo not the other way around yeah i do from what I've, I've never got to meet sam but i've i've pitched to his offices and i pitched to his folks and uh, uh he just seems like the nicest guy in the world everybody who works with sam says that about him yeah and his movies are so much fun and uh you know his sense of humor <laughs> i love his sense of humor in his films and He's such such he just seems like such a wonderful uh, filmmaker. So yeah. yeah, yeah, you'd be very hard pressed to find somebody that that doesn't like working with Sam Raimi in this town. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm I love this. I love the experience that you've had. Like, it, it's like I get access, <laughs> which I really dig. So when you when you sat down with Spielberg. And he started, because he's incredibly visually oriented, and he's mm -hmm. one of those nerds that understands the language of cinema better oh, than anybody. Completely, and he has an unfettered imagination uh, that is just boundless. Wow. What? So did he sit down with you initially and talk you through everything, or did you have to present him stuff and then he back backwards went through it? And I remember sitting next to him in a meeting where we were talking about ideas, and this was the uh, first time I worked with him was on the BFG, mm -hmm. uh, and I had a tablet computer with me, and I was drawing on it, and so I was just sketching up ideas as we were discussing like the look and production 
um, designing, I think, the giant's cave. Uh, and we was kicking around ideas. I would occasionally just like sketch up something and I'd say, well, we could do something like this. And I just show it to him. And, and he really responded to that, that process. There were a lot of people in the room with us at the time we were over at Amblin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember, I think one of the first sketches I did that he responded to was I had this idea of the, this waterfall curtain that separated the front of his cave from the back where he had all these jars of dreams because the other giants were afraid of water. And then I did this drawing of this kind of, uh, uh, it was like the, uh, a wedge that would come up and split the waterfall and like a curtain, like separating a curtain so you could walk through to get into the other side. Oh, I that's one of the cool. First drawings I did, I believe that's in, in the movie. That's cool, man. Yeah. So I would just be sitting there and sketching up ideas as we were talking and kind of show them occasionally. Yeah. And then, and then you did, you know, Ready Player One, which I love that movie. Like, um, I, I love a lot of the sequences and the action sequences in that movie. I think they're really great. Um, uh, the Yeah, it's interesting with uh, uh, Ready Player I, I, There's a lot of things about Ready Player One I wish we could have done differently. Mm-hmm. I was a big fan of the book. I had actually read the book a couple of times before I worked on it. And yeah, me too. There, there was a time when uh, when we were working on, B, on the BFG when Stephen said, has anybody read this book, Ready Player One? And I said, uh, yeah, I've read it three times. <laughs> and he said, I'm reading it now, and I really kind of like it. And I said, I want to talk to you about it when you're done. <laughs> so one of the things I was pushing was I I really wanted the two main characters not to meet until the end of the story. Oh, weird. Uh, as it is in the book. Right. Uh, and in our first meeting on... Um, oh, in Reddit real Day, life. You mean in real life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I gotcha. Mean, yeah, that they didn't meet in person, that they didn't actually get to be in, in the same space with one another until the very end of the story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in our first meeting, we were talking about that. If the writer was really against it, was convinced that it wouldn't work. And Stephen said, I'm not, I don't know if we can make that work. And I said to him... I don't know if we can either, Stephen, but it is so hard to find a great ending to any story. And I think in the book, that was a great ending, and we owe it to ourselves to explore that possibility. Yeah. And he said, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, no, because it was a lot, the, the book was a lot darker. There was a lot of stuff in that book that I wouldn't have translated into a PG, yeah. you know, what is it, PG 13? PG 13 Spielberg movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love that. I actually read the. Did you read the second one? Uh, no, I haven't read the second one yet. Should I? Is it? Is it's it not good? bad, man. It's not bad. It. it, it there. There are points. There are points where it feels like they're starting to rehash it again, sort of go down that path again. But there's some interesting stuff on it, and I won't give anything away. But they they talk about overpopulation, and there's some interesting yeah. stuff that happens in there. Yeah. Um, I loved the, the the first one. I grabbed by happenstance. I was I was grabbing a flight and, and I needed something to read, and the cover looked really cool. And I grabbed it and I flipped through. I almost read the whole book on that flight. I was reading so I, fast. I read it because my friend my friend uh, Bill Croyer, uh, who had actually started at Disney same time as the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, Bill was talking to, would rave about that book, and after like the third time that we were in at dinner together at a party together sometime and he was 
going on about Ready Player One. I said, okay, okay, I'm going to read the damn book. <laughs> and he had read it several times as well. And so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, uh, yeah, I just devoured it. Yeah, I mean, just, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't surprise me being a storyboard artist, being a visualist, because that book is, is just overflowing with visuals. It is, but it really was, there was something about that situation, about the main character meeting this girl that, that he immediately resonated to. And you felt like they were more, those two characters were more fun together than they were apart, mm -hmm. which I think is a critical element to romantic, to romantic comedy or just romance in cinema and maybe in life in general. Mm -hmm. uh, but you didn't know, or he didn't know a lot. He didn't know, for one thing, if she really was a girl. He didn't know what she was like. <laughs> uh, you know, just knew her personality through her avatar. And that was such a strong hook for me emotionally. Just like I wanted them to get together. And the fact that, you know, they, they spent a lot of time interacting together in the virtual world, but they didn't actually meet in in person uh and i had just loved that final bit in it where he'd said for the first time and as long as i could remember i didn't want to go back into the oasis right it was such a it was a touching moment it reminds me actually um <laughs> we're gonna get off of the subject of cinema and into literature there's a, <laughs> one of my favorite books is a book called uh, confederacy of dunces i've never read it it's, it's a never been made into a movie uh it won the Pulitzer Prize posthumously. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think it's just a tremendous book, wonderful characters. But the, the ending, like the very last sentence in that book is one of those like really touching moments, which I'm not going to say right now, but right. it had a similar effect, just like uh, it was not the main character. The protagonist of that story is not necessarily a likable person but protect but characters don't need to be likable they need to be interesting they need to want something and they need to do interesting things to get it yeah uh, and it's one of the reasons why so often in films villains are much more engaging than heroes mm -hmm. uh, I, and i think from a writing point of view we shouldn't think of our characters in, in those terms we should never this is gets into a thing that we can kind of connect this back into directing. When you're directing actors, you shouldn't put value judgments on your actors. You shouldn't label them. Yeah. That's something the audience gets to do. We as filmmakers and storytellers and writers don't have that luxury. So we can't say this person is the hero, this person is the bad guy. The audience can make that determination. The characters are like our children. We have to love them all, even if we don't like what they're doing, even if we disagree with what they're doing. We need to understand why they're doing those things and embrace it in that moment that they're doing it and believe in it in that moment that they're doing it. Yeah, no, I agree and with that's, that. And that's how you get to to create realistic performances. That's how you write realistic dialogue. And that's how you direct uh, strongly emotional scenes. Yeah. And then the character just has that dimension to it that if you were prejudging that character, yeah. you would shut down immediately. Just go, okay, he's the bad guy, so he doesn't really yeah, care. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's interesting. There's so many books about writing that have been written, but most of them are written from an analytical point of view and not a process point of view. Mm -hmm. From an analytical point of view, meaning somebody read a bunch of great scripts and then broke down why they were great. 
but looking at something that's completed and and analyzing what makes it great is is completely different than how the process that you go through to try to create something that is hopefully very true great. very true and I, I, the, I think it's valuable for writers to really study the craft of acting again i'm not an actor so i'm i'm only approaching it from the experience of having directed a lot of actors mm-hmm. but they the process of creating characters in that that way that you believe in that you you're you're not thinking about what the characters are you think about what the characters do mm-hmm. and that is a critical thing that a lot of people have trouble grasping especially when they study writing from an analytical point of view it's too easy to look at what the characters are and not what they do there is a there's a book uh, on acting i think it's called acting is doing mm-hmm. this the idea you don't want to tell an actor to be sad you want to give them something to do that'll get them to that emotional state uh, if you just say be happy be sad you're you're doing result directing you're directing by telling them the results you want instead of telling them what what they need to do like what they need to think about or what they need to uh, physically or uh, mentally be doing at the time to attain that yeah that state that yeah. then an audience member can pass the judgment on and say oh they're sad yeah yeah, what I find that's so fascinating about being a filmmaker is that there, there are so many different stages to each of these steps, you know, and when you're talking about writing, for me, when we start, you know, breaking story or trying to figure out where where a film's going to go, it's almost like when, we, when you're sketching for the first time and you're trying to proportion it. You're trying to mm-hmm. understand the proportions of like, okay, here's here's where I think the story should go. Here's how the act structure I think could work. Let's play with that. But you know, let, let, let's generalize this stuff to, tr- to try to figure out whether or not structurally on cards this makes sense. And, mm-hmm. th- and then you kind of have to throw that mindset away. And then you have to kind of dig into it, like you were saying before, where you have to fall in love with these characters. You have to let these characters take you where it's going to go. Yeah. Um, and what's so fascinating about, you know, the whole stat, I'm sure you know this directing at this point, I find that each one of these stages, whether it's like breaking story and trying to figure that out, going through the screenwriting process, then going through the prep process and, and, and essentially crossing out all the descriptions on your screenplay and like doing a whole new director's breakdown of it. It's, it's like you have to be able to turn your brain in a 180 direction creatively all the time, which is which is so hard to do when you first get started with it but when you start to understand that that's your job it's it's kind of exhilarating because then you can just go okay look I, all that hard work i did before just got me to this point so let me just throw away everything that i was attached to for this for this moment and let's try to get through this next section all the way down to like when you get in the edit room where you're like okay so we busted our ass and we you know the blood sweat and tears i cut my arm off on set to make this thing happen now I'm sitting down in the edit room and I have to forget all of that. And I have to just go through these clips and try to assemble this thing. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's like Faulkner said, writing is the process of killing your little darlings. Yeah. I, I think it's a, I think it's a process of cutting out certain aspects of your brain. <laughs> we, there's, um, there's also, there are uh, directors who, um, argue against planning or against storyboarding entirely because they feel like it kills the spontaneity mm-hmm. of, of the process. And I can understand that. And I think it's important for directors to be able to improvise 
if for no other reasons, just for survival, because no matter how well you plan, a situation will come up where you're going to find yourself walking onto a, a set with no yeah. planning at all, and you just have to wing it. However, in my experience, it's better to have a plan from which to deviate before you you go in. Me too. But just be yeah. willing to deviate. Don't just realize it's a starting point. Yeah, me too. I, boards for me are great because I get to pre-edit the movie. I get to actually mm-hmm. work it out and, and sit there instead of either on set having that moment where you pause and go, oh, wait, wait, should they walk this way? I get to sort of figure out all that shit way ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it also helps me walk through the edit because I, I edit a lot of stuff. So it helps me walk through the, the edit process early, early on and go, all right, at the end of the day, I know I have, you know, 35 shots boarded out for today, but I only need 15 of these. But, mm-hmm. you know, and so like, you can make that argument and you can make that push to make the film even bigger and better than it would normally be but then you know that as a backup and your team knows as a backup like look as long as we get these 15 shots the scene is in place the audience isn't going to notice that we didn't get the other 15 so we're fine you know yeah uh it really helps with planning for me at least um dude this is great uh, how, how are you doing on time you okay uh yeah pretty much i'm getting pinged about uh making a delivery on another project i'm working on but <laughs> i won't keep you too long um this has been fantastic and the amount of experience and the time that you've been you've been doing this stuff for is so phenomenal i could, i would love to work with you <laughs> <laughs> just to, just to sit down in the space and be like man what do you think about this um let me ask you selfishly. Let me let me talk to you a little bit about uh, the Godzilla King of the Monsters, which you did some storyboard work on. Uh-huh. I am the you know you can picture me as a uh, you know a ten year old boy glued to the screen, wearing out my VHS of old Godzilla movies. Yeah. Uh, and so when I saw this film, uh, this one more so than Gareth Edwards, I feel like this one was made by another director who was also wearing out his videotape. Yeah, yeah. Of uh, of it um, specifically, what I haven't read the script for it. The bit where Godzilla like confronts the submarine and then blows his uh, flames up into the sky was that in the board as the scripts or was that something that you guys designed when you were doing the board sport? Uh, well, I I did the first drawing, staging it, and the and the final film is very close to the way it was. But uh, the director Michael Duggerty was very specific he had that in his mind got it i think he always intended that to be um, a trailer moment uh, <laughs> yeah. so i'd like to i'd like to say that i added that to the story i drew it but that really was completely um that was completely him i, I can't remember if it was specifically in the script described that way or if that's just the way he he pitched it to me when we were working together yeah, because the action sequences in that are just so great, and the yeah. perspectives are so phenomenal, and the the camera angles and the uh, the scale. And I'm just looking as we're talking right now. I'm looking at the boards that you have on your website. The sense of scale and the interaction between Godzilla and the humans is so phenomenal. I had heard rumors that Toho has a bunch of rules on like how Godzilla is allowed to emotionally interact with actors yeah. and stuff. Is that true? Uh, probably. I haven't heard specifically about interacting with actors, but I know that that there were a number of things that the director was uh, c- 
contending with in terms of their their feedback on things. I think they had a, a real problem with Godzilla eating uh, uh, Ghidorah. Am I pronouncing it? Oh, Ghidorah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Ghidorah, Ghidorah. In the end, I seem to recall that. But yeah. The, uh, one of the things that I that I had added to the film, the Mothra uh, waking up was one of the sequences I did. Or Mothra coming out of the cocoon. Yeah, not cool. not the opening sequence from the larva, but um, I put that behind the waterfall. It was actually <laughs> described that it was in front of a giant waterfall, and I said, "Why don't we put it behind?" So we're just seeing glimpses like through this curtain. Super um, rad. Um, yeah, I know that. Mike and, and his co-writer, had, Zach, had liked that a lot. Um, yeah. Dude, look, I'm not going to hold you up. I like Doug, this has been fantastic. The, the, the movies that you have worked on and the filmmakers that you've worked with, um, it's just uh, awe-inspiring to me. And the, the amount of, like, I could sit here and talk to you for, for like five hours. <laughs> the amount of, of, of knowledge that I'm just pulling out of you selfishly. I'm, I'm just loving every bit of it. Um, I, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show and, and sharing your stories with us, ma'am. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. It's a, I, I love talking about the, the business and, and I love uh, talking about the art of visualizing. Oh, me too. Stories. Me too, man. Right, what are you, are you working on projects right now? I am. Um, I am doing a, a couple of projects, and I can't talk about sure. most of them, actually. But um, I'm doing a project with NASA right now, which I'm actually really excited about. Weird. With NASA? Yeah. Huh. yeah. And it's actually uh, partially a uh, digital comics project. Huh. Fascinating. Uh, I had... Um, uh, this will get a, could be a whole other podcast, but... Um, <laughs> I love creating uh, original content, and and to do that, I actually developed a, a, I invented and patented a digital comics format called Scrollon, oh. which um, I've licensed out to a couple of different companies, including the Third Floor and DC Comics, and now we're doing a project with uh, JPL NASA, and that's very exciting. That's cool, man. Uh, and I'm doing another project with Sam Raimi, and which I cannot talk about oh so cool <laughs> so cool man and a couple of video game projects sounds like you're it sounds like you're busy busy yeah <laughs> well that's great dude um all right well i'm gonna let you go thanks for being on the show and uh i, I if you ever want to come back i could talk to you for another hour <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have to do it again sometime done great conversation i wish i had him longer i'm gonna actually try to get him back on in the future because every every like i said you just follow his train of thought and you're just like what you did hocus pocus what you're doing hocus pocus at the same time that you did hard target and how'd you get a hard target oh right because of the story about sam raimi and hard target and you're sam raimi's guy and oh and then you got to sit down, sit down with john woo and what the fuck 
Can you imagine the education that Doug has had just sitting with directors and deciding on angles and shots and coverage? No wonder why he's a second unit director. And the experience that Doug has had as a storyteller, bringing that to the drawings, bringing that tool to a table where, you know, if you're an inexpensive, inexperienced uh, storyboard artist, you're, you might be thinking like, okay, what is the director usually like and how do I do the coverage? And this should be like a three coverage thing and you start to follow that formula and that structure. Doug seems to come at it from story perspective, which I think is so great. There's a reason why he's doing all the big stuff. There's a reason why Spielberg's like, yo, come back. Right? There's a reason for it. Very excited to know the man. Very excited. I'm going to send him some of my stuff. I'd love to work with him. It sounds like he's too busy, but it doesn't matter. I'll still talk to him. Um, let's see. What else is going on? There was something else I was going to say to you guys. I was telling you about the black magic thing. There was a thought that came to mind. Fuck, man. God damn it, it's right at the edge. Mm. I'm hitting that point where I'm starting to forget things. Fucking A. Talked about, all right, so we talked about uh, Gina's music videos. Those guys came out. That's great. Um, talked about potentially doing a new music video thing. That's That was a part of it. Then um, there was something that I was gonna. I talked about the Black Magic camera and I was prepping the Black Magic camera. Fuck you! It's like right on the edge of my tongue and I didn't write it down. Mm, I know you guys are feeling it. Talked about working on the new movie and prepping the new film, which is going good. Learning a lot on that, by the way. Um, we just did some creature designs. I think I could talk about this stuff. We did some creature designs and that stuff was really fun. That process was interesting. Um, oh, God damn it. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> I had another point that I was going to make and it was going to be fun. And now you guys are like, God damn it, Mike. What a dick tease. Yes, my bad. My bad. I'm like looking around, hunting for like, what else? I got a new vinyl. I got Come True, which is uh, the score from that movie. And the score was really great. And I got that vinyl in. Um, oh, we're talking about movies. I, so I'm excited to go see some films. And I know we're still in like COVID-y, lockdown-y kind of thing. But out here in California, you can still go to see movies as long as you're wearing your mask. And I'm pumped because the Alamo Draft House is up and running. Um, and I ended up seeing Pig which was fantastic. If you guys haven't seen Pig yet, that Nicolas Cage movie, it's a wonderful movie. Very sad film uh, about a man processing loss and processing sadness, which I really liked. I was very surprised because the way it was marketed, it was like, what is this, Mandy 2, Pig? Mandy 2, Pigaloo. <laughs> um, so that one was really great. I want to see The Green Knight. Everybody says that that's amazing. Maybe I'll try to sneak out today and see that. I want to see that. Um, and then, uh, you know, we're still waiting. I'm still waiting for that Top Gun. We're still waiting for the big stuff, which I'm very excited about. So yeah, a lot of things going on. Hopefully, uh, if you guys have seen any new movies, write to me. Let me know. What are you watching? What do you like? Um, and uh, that's it. Okay, enough ranting, enough raving. That's it. We're done. Thanks for listening to the show. Um, I appreciate it. And as always, I will see you next Tuesday. 
Oh no!